Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 19th of January 2022, a little bit after one o'clock, seven minutes past one. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Tom Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands and also our very own uh, Debbie Evans. So um, a few little snags there before we started, but we're delighted to say UK Column News is running. Let's kick off with... Well, Morrison's in fact. So here's the BBC coverage of it. BBC uh, saying that Morrison's confer confirmed sick pay cut for unvaccinated staff uh, and, uh, well, a number of uh, commercial organisations uh, now starting to pull this gag. Um, so let's punish the unvaccinated employees and maybe drive them out. Maybe that's their intention. Uh, so Morrison's saying that they want uh, unvaccinated staff to receive uh, statutory sick pay only. So let's just have a look at the response to a viewer from Next on this issue. And thank you very much to the person who sent this through. Um, and the next statement was, I'd like to assure you that Next will, will pay company sick pay to employees who test positive with COVID regardless of vaccination status. Okay. However, if an employee is unvaccinated, tests negative and comes into contact with a positive case and is therefore required to self-isolate, Next will pay statutory sick pay unless they're mitigating circumstances. So, uh, Brian, that's pretty clear, um, although Next doesn't seem to be saying that they will just, uh, as a blanket policy, say anybody unvaccinated doesn't get their their you know, their company sick pay policy, uh, plan or whatever their policy is. Um, I'd like to know what the, uh, be interested if anybody that has some idea of, uh, you know, uh, legal contracts and so on, um, I'd be interested to get some yeah, feedback how on this how stands legal this in is, law. how, how this stands, stands in law, because... Yeah. Uh, people have signed a contract with certain terms and conditions and uh, the employers seem to be changing those terms and conditions um, without uh, without any particular uh, advance notice and so on. Um, so I'd be interested yeah. to see how that stands. I'm, I'm just going to add, I'm sure that this is uh, part of the government's objective is chaos in the workplace over contracts as a result of uncertain guidance over covid itself and the vaccine. So it's going to be interesting to watch how this one develops. Uh, now, last week, we uh, I think it was on Friday, we mentioned this uh, on virtual conference being held by the uh, Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, the MHRA. It was entitled uh, Good Clinical Practice, uh, running from Monday the 7th until Wednesday the 11th of March 2022. Uh, so they were inviting people to uh, to get tickets for it and so on. Um, and uh, well, you can see who all involved, the FDA, uh, the uh, Health Canada and so on involved in this. And it, what they were saying was that the COVID-19 pandemic has necessitated flexibility in trial conduct and accelerated changes in the clinical trial landscape. Um, and uh, so they're saying that regulators have also provided new guidance on trial conduct, taking a pragmatic and proportionate approach to trials uh, being conducted during the pandemic. Uh, let's have a look at uh, what the government has just by coincidence released uh, on Monday, proposals for legislative changes for clinical trials. Uh, and let's uh, look at what this is uh, under the headline of the MHRA as well. So let's have a look and see what the MHRA is saying. This consultation, it is a consultation, so there's an opportunity, as you'll see at the end, to take part in that. This consultation outlines a set of proposals capitalising on the opportunity to reframe the UK legislation for clinical trials responding to the needs of the sector to deliver a more streamlined and flexible regulatory regime whilst protecting the interests of patients and trial participants. 
Uh, it goes on to say these proposals uh, also take steps to remove bureaucracy to support an efficient and effective clinical trials environment in line with recommendations for the Task Force for Innovation, Growth and Regulatory Reform, TIGER as it's being called, uh, and support faster access to new innovative treatments for patients. In other words, remove the safety aspect of it. Uh, but let's move on. They go on to say there are a number of changes we would make to update the processes for clinical trial approvals set out in part three of the current UK legislation. Uh, these changes would be to reflect that we have left the EU to support more proportionate regulatory requirements and to simplify and streamline pro processes. So proportionality is all the way through this document. Simplification, streamlining, uh, this of course once again means no safety. Uh, well, this is all the language of trying to lure people to the fact that the MHRA or to believe that the MHRA is looking after our safety with regard to vaccines and pharmaceuticals when in fact it is not doing that at all. So there's change here and it's trying to placate the public. This is all for your protection, whereas in fact something completely different is happening. Well, it's clearly something completely different because they're they're talking about removing the, the, the sort of major rules and regulations over clinical trials. So streamlining processes will support quicker timelines for overall trial approval compared to the current processes and provide a competitive advantage, encouraging sponsors to run trials in the UK. Again, Remove the safety aspect. You can run the trials much faster. Don't worry about it. No, no long-term safety trials at all. Uh, and that provides the UK, UK companies with a competitive advantage and encourage uh, the pharma companies to run their trials in the UK. Fantastic. Uh, the proposed notification scheme is a way through which a sponsor can notify the MHR about a clinical trial where the risk is similar to that of standard medical care and the clinical trial can be approved without the need for a regulatory review. So it's, you know, just uh, every paragraph is talking about the removal of the protections that there are for the, uh, uh, for the patient, for the person receiving the medication, um, and making sure that it's as easy as possible for big pharma to get uh, any kind of drug through the clinical trial process as quickly as possible. So if you want to uh, find the uh, consultation document itself, it's a, a web interface for you to put your views down. If you have a hunt for uh, MHRA and uh, consultation on proposals for legislative changes for clinical trials, uh, and if you just put the words background questions on the end of that, that should appear uh, as the first link. Um, and uh, But undoubtedly, we'll have the link to that uh, in the show notes on the UK Column website. So uh, that's pretty clear. We are going to uh, remove uh, all the protections. Uh, from the clinical trial process. That's the way it looks. I'd just like to, to bring Debbie Evans in here because Debbie, we didn't get a chance to talk about this particular segment of the news. So you've, you've just heard Mike reporting there. What's your opinion on what the MHRA is trying to sell us in this, uh, in this announcement? I believe the MHRA uh, are wanting to be the global regulator and the clinical trials as it seems. And I mean, let's put this clinical trials into context. A normal clinical trial for animal studies could last two to five years, but a normal clinical trial would be anything between 1800 days to 3,652 days. And as we'll see later, what they're doing is they're running clinical trials phase one, phase two, phase three in parallel to each other. So they're cutting down the time. And by cutting down the time, obviously we're cutting out safety. 
Uh, but what they're talking about here, Debbie, is even taking that, cutting down the time further, making it much easier for uh, for the trials to take place. So even shortening the duration of, of stage three clinical trials, which are supposed to take a number of years, right? Well, We'll be taking that down, as we'll see in a bit, to 100 days and less. So we are, rad I mean, this has never been done before. We'll be going from a long-term clinical trials to virtually no clinical trials, and they'll be run alongside together in parallel. Yeah. Well, let's uh, just do a quick recap um, from the, for the 100 days information, which we showed on, on Monday. So these were some of the slides that David Scott brought forward. So... Here's the big G7 announcement, 100 days mission to respond to future pandemic threats. And of course, David pointed out that uh, when we got into this uh, statement, whose were the signatures? Well, it was Sir Patrick Valance there on the left and alongside him, the lovely Melinda French Gates. So are we dealing with the government protecting us or is this all part of big pharmaceutical and and uh, massive profits across, across the globe. Well, we'll leave the audience to think about that. Uh, but this comes on to what really Debbie was starting to come to. On the left, we've got a, um, a timeline for COVID-19, but where we're heading is apparently in the future, uh, even that timeline is gonna be shortened to just 100 days. So who declares public health uh, emergency and 100 days later, uh, we're into delivering vaccines with apparently accurate and approved rapid diagnostic tests. So where is, <clears throat> excuse me, where is safety gone? Now, just give you a little bit of a prompt, Debbie. Um, I know that uh, it was this little event in Cornwall. We should be able to get Boris moving there. But this was Carbis Bay. This was the uh, G7 talks. And um, you had a, a look at some of the videos to do with what was happening. Uh, tell us what you picked up on. What was it going on in Cornwall that caught your eye? Well, what was going on in Cornwall was that this agenda, which was basically silent, uh, walking along the beach there, and then you get a shot of them in, in, in a meeting room, and then the cameras disappear. And I noticed that there was a debate uh, agendaed for the G7, which was talking about a pandemic preparedness group um, but it was a closed meeting, and always when I see closed meeting, it's uh, red for, well, what are they actually talking about? And what they were talking about was the 100-day mission. And this was when, um, because Boris Johnson was president of the G7, he was um, advised to look into how we would go about vaccinating the world very quickly. Um, for all sorts of things, as we'll come on to later. But this was all the origin of it. And I just picked up on it because nothing much was said in the press. And I wanted to know what was going on behind closed doors. Right. That's, uh, that's really excellent. Well, of course, one of the uh, companies that came up once you get into this is CEPI. So let's just bring uh, their image up on screen. Here we are, new vaccines for a safer world. And uh, if we get a little bit down on their website, this is the uh, key bit here. I think it'll expand on screen. So we're talking about a minimum of $3.5 billion in order to get this program moving. All uh, 100 days against the next disease, which they're calling X, uh, would apparently give the world a fighting chance to extinguish the 
existential threat of a future pandemic virus. And uh, if you take a look in their board meetings, always a good place to go. Here we are, September 2021. I was just fascinated by who was taking part in this. So we've got Charlotte Watts, the UK Department for International Development. So this has moved away from health, Mike. We're into, we're into um, politics overseas. And uh, if I go on to the second page, then we've got the World Bank involved. This is very key to this. We've got pharmaceutical industry and, and the World Bank, immensely powerful bank. And uh, down here, we've got Darren Welsh from the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. So is this about health or is this about global politics? I think the evidence uh, from what you can see on the website is this is about global politics. Uh, but if we get into a little bit of the statement in these board minutes, it says reflected on the increasing use of booster COVID-19 vaccination doses and the need to reflect on what CEPI's role is as COVID-19 becomes an endemic disease with a well-defined market. Mm. So is this about protecting people's health or is this about um, creating global markets? Um, I, on one hand, I could say it's difficult to say, but on the other hand, I think we definitely know that the pharmaceuticals want to make money. So let's have a little look at the film clip here, which is Richard Hatchett from CEPI talking about what CEPI's actually involved in. Mobilizing the world for an outbreak of so-called disease X. That is one of the core missions of Dr. Richard Hatchett, who is the CEO of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI for short. Dr. Thank Hatchett, thanks so much for being here at the BioBell Center. Thanks, Mike, it's a real pleasure to be here. For those who are not familiar with this acronym, yep. what is CEPI, how long has it been around, what does it do? Okay, CEPI is a, is a public-private partnership that's been established since January of 2017. Not it, that it, long ago. No, it's, it's, it's brand new. We're about 16 months into, into, into its existence. We were established at Davos in 2017 to uh, develop vaccines against epidemic disease threats. It was really a byproduct of the Ebola epidemic in 2014, 2015, and a realization that the world needed to be better prepared for these threats. Dr. Hatchett, speaking of Ebola, it recently reared its ugly head again in the Republic of Congo. Yep. Other key opinion leaders and experts are saying that the Zika virus is also kind of lying in wait and it's gonna pop up at some point. It's not a question of if, but when. So how, when it's no longer in the headlines, not front page news, not on cable news, day in and day out, do you maintain stakeholder engagement and keep focused on the mission you just talked about? Well, I, I think the, the world has actually come to realize that epidemic threats are perpetual and that even though you can't predict which threat will come next, whether it will be Ebola, whether it will be Zika, loss of fever or some other threat, we know that there will be threats. And, and I think CEPI actually embodies the recognition on the part of the world that, that we need to actually prepare for these threats prospectively. We can, if we can effectively mobilize the political will to do it, we can eliminate the threat of epidemics. That's not to say that we can eliminate the risk of outbreaks. Diseases will still emerge, outbreaks will still occur, but we can prevent them from becoming national security threats, from becoming threats to global health security. I'll give you two examples. That sounds like an outlandish thing to say, mm -hmm. but look at where we are today with HIV. 
there are still millions of people who are infected. But in the year 2000, the intelligence community here in the United States issued an estimate. They estimated that 100 million people would die of HIV in Africa within five years. They estimated that countries would fall apart, that life expectancies would fall by 20 or 30 years. That, that estimation of the security threat that HIV you know, posed, coupled with the activism, obviously, of, of, of HIV sufferers, mobilized, galvanized political will. It led to the creation of things like PEPFAR and to other programs that have delivered life-saving medications to people in Africa who we never imagined could afford these medications. Look at where we are with famines. 40, 50 years ago, famines were part of, you know, they just happened. The, the rains didn't fall, food, you know, crops failed, and people starved. We've now put in place international institutions, response mechanisms, surveillance systems, and except in places like Yemen or North Korea, where either political causes or conflict prevent us from going and addressing shortfalls of food, famine has been eliminated as a threat to the human populations. We can get there with epidemics. We just have to have the political will to do so. And that so a fascinating little clip there. Of course, right at the end, what's he, what's he talking about? He's talking about predictions from security services where apparently millions of people were going to die. That was the fear agenda. It didn't happen. But then he starts to bring in the key bit of surveillance. So we're not talking about health. We're talking about health surveillance, health security. We've got two things running alongside. Now, uh, Debbie, just before I bring you back in, you actually pointed out that, of course, we need to have a little look at Tony Blair if we want, really want to understand what the health security is about, because his Institute for Global Change says that increased surveillance is a price worth paying. And uh, this is from uh, Reclaim the Net article. It's very good. It said it's got a quote from Chris Yu, the executive director of technology and public policy at the Tony Blair Institute. And this gentleman says the careful application of technology offers a way out at a price, dramatically increased surveillance, but in a three-way choice between the overwhelm, sorry, between overwhelming the NHS, collapsing the economy, or living with more tracking and data sharing, this is a price worth paying. So we're being sold this as though it's something to do with health, but in fact, what we're actually looking at is the collection of data and uh, tracking of everything we're up to. What, what's your comment on this, Debbie? Uh, well, yes, absolutely correct. And we can see it here in the UK um, with, as, as Mike's often talked about, fusion, with the fusion of um, Public Health England and Test and Trace with the UK Security Agency. So now we have UK HSA. So we've automatically, since when did we link health and security together? But they are predominantly now. And, you know, if you want to look at where CEPI, where the idea for CEPI was conceived, if, if your viewers and listeners want to go back and look at um, Sir Jeremy Farrer, he, he wrote a paper called Establishing Global Vaccine Development Fund in 2015. Now, so Sir Jeremy Farrer was a member of SAGE, but he resigned because he, he really wants global vaccination. So, and he's also a director of Wellcome. So this was, CEPI was funded by Wellcome and Sir Bill Gates, because let's not forget Bill Gates was knighted by the Queen in 2005, even though he's not allowed to use that title. But this is, a, this is um, an organization that is accepting donations from public price, uh, philanthropy, and predominantly, its first aim, as I can see, is surveillance.
I'll just I'll just yeah. say, Brian, you know, that the first thing he said in that little video clip was we're a public private partnership. Yeah. And I just remind everybody to go and look at last Wednesday's program with Ian Davis. Yes. Uh, to, 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 and, and actually understand what he's talking about when he's talking about public private partnerships in this way. And he was also saying that, you know, health is a national security issue. So, yeah, again, national, national security, security issue. Yes. Yeah. Uh, right. Well, of course, the other thing that you uh, discovered was this little uh, statement by Bill Gates. And the subject is Davos 2017 again, a global initiative to fight epidemics. Let's have a little look at what uh, Mr. Gates had to say. Bill Gates, there you have it. It would have been there within weeks. Um, you are uh, known as someone who likes concrete numbers and metrics of, of, of success. So I'd like to get your sense of, first of all, why did you support this? But secondly, what do you expect and hope that CEPI will achieve? Well, unfortunately, even though there's a substantial risk of various types of epidemics, there's not a natural marketplace and there's not a natural incentive for people to build products that anticipate that. Uh, it simply wouldn't make sense for the private sector on its own uh, to do this work. And so when we look at this kind of risk, the epidemic risk, you've got to bring governments and foundations together to create the right incentive structure. Uh, so the good news is that the uh, ability to make vaccines quickly it may be possible to get that to be dramatically less than it's been. There's a new approach uh, that is sometimes called DNA RNA vaccines uh, that the part you would change to go after a new disease would be a very small part of it. And so a lot of the work, the safety work, the manufacturing work, you could cut that out. So there we are, clear as a bell, Debbie, and you, you spotted this, Bill Gates simply saying we're going to cut out safety work. Sorry, and just to remind, that was 2017. 2017 so we yeah. started this program talking about the MHR, MHRA, changing the legislative framework for, uh, for clinical trials, and yep. he was already talking about this in 2017. Well, what we can see, Mike, of course, is the, the recent, this latest announcement by the MHRA is, is to, in order to make Bill Gates' policy become real. Mm -hmm. They're now putting this in place. Um, so, Debbie, you, you spotted that, and uh, Gates was, was very simply telling us what was coming. We are going to produce these things in the lab. We're going to push them out. We don't need to worry about safety tests. No, exactly. And, 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 you know, what Mike said, this was 2017. We must remember this was January 2017. And this was when CEPI was launched at Davos in the World Economic Forum. So quite clearly, you could see Bill Gates shifting around. I mean, anybody that wants to go and listen to that whole segment, it's not terribly long, but it, it, it's, it's quite revealing on what was going on in 2017. It was all planned and I had to rerun it a couple of times to make sure that my ears were hearing that safety was going to be cut. And I genuinely took a gasp, horrified. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, where does the picture go from here? Well, uh, the little advert, A Decade of Health, this is just a little 30-second clip. We've shown this before, I believe, but let's just remind ourselves of what we're being told about where health uh, matters are going. If 
the R number continues to grow at this rate. Local hospitals are facing a, a potential UK breakthrough in the search. If the R number continues to grow at this rate, local hospitals are facing a, a potential UK breakthrough in the search for a global vaccine. Let's take this off. Now that it's over, we are seeing funds redirected to fight other diseases. A treatment that allows a baby to see for the first Recovery rate skyrocket, revolutionizing the health industry. What a 10 years it's been. People across the UK are working to make this future of health a reality for everyone. So not very clear, but if you, if you do take the time to watch that little clip, what they're talking about very casually is that at specific dates, certain diseases will be dealt with blindness or cancer. So this is apparently on a timeline. And uh, if we actually um, freeze part of that little video clip, we come up, of course, with who are the supporters of Decade of Health. And there at the beginning, we've got Bill and Melinda Gates. Uh, we go through London School of Hygiene, UNICEF, Wellcome Trust, Save the Children. And again, Debbie, this is now telling us where we're going because we can link it into NHS talking about precision medicine, design and build AI. Uh, if we go on through the document that they link to, we've got a professor, Philip Beals. He says pre precision medicine is encompassing predictive, pre preventative, personalized and participatory medicine, and it's moving from the traditional one size fits all. And um, if we add a little bit here, it says, however, AI can address this by leveraging deep learning approaches to overcome obstacles inherent in large data sets. In clinical settings, AI can assist clinicians. So we're going to trust AI, apparently. And we've also got NHS genomics coming through. A study of the body's genes, their functions and their influence on growth. And we're going to harness the power of genomic medicine and science to improve the health of our population. So I've put these things on screen here. Precision genomic medicines, diagnostics, therapeutics, vaccines and antivirals, because this is where we're going. We are already uh, running to the clock, Debbie. So very, very quickly, tell us what your take is on um, for the importance of these individual items on screen well, very what, quickly what are I we mean, seeing they, they call they call these weapons and they say these are the weapon this is the weaponry in their arsenal and sepi diagnostic to me smacks of tests so more tests to see if we're okay wearable devices for example therapeutics something that we would call a therapeutic ivermectin vitamin c for example they're now calling therapeutics um really, really strong cocktails of antivirals and monoclonal antibodies that you would use in patients with HIV and Ebola. So we're upstepping the therapeutics and vaccines. Most people associate vaccines with infectious diseases, but actually we're going to be giving or offering people vaccines for cancer. So if you've got cancer in your family or maybe Alzheimer's in your family, vaccines will be used for diseases. So not just for infections. So the whole platform, the vaccine platform has completely transformed and changed and this is the way forward and and lastly debbie you, you've got concerns about the fact that people are going to be offered these antivirals 
So vaccines may sort of drift into the background a bit as we get, I'm going to call them intelligent pills. Why, why are you so concerned about the antivirals? I'm very concerned about them because I don't think we're giving them enough attention and there seems to be a bit of a lull in the vaccination at the moment, vaccinations at the moment. But already on the market, we've got monoclonal antibodies, clonal antibodies are manufactured in a laboratory. The, the antibodies that we manufacture are called polyclonal antibodies, so they're manufactured very strong and the antivirals that they're using, they're giving to people in hospital and they're not telling people they're having these very dangerous cocktails of drugs. There's one that I'm into it called Molnupiravir, which is a tablet you take at home if you've proven positive for COVID to stop you going into hospital. But equally, that is very, very dangerous. It's untested. It's failed clinical tests. And my question is, do the British public, are they aware that they could get offered this in hospital or at home? And if so, do they know what they're taking? Uh, well, we've mentioned uh, Molnupiravir uh, on this programme, and, and there are a couple of others that have come out in the last number of weeks. And of course, Debbie, that's, that's why they had to get rid of uh, ivermectin and uh, hydroxychloroquine to make room for these. Well, interestingly, Mike, um, they call Molnupiravir being called the super ivermectin we call of course we know that it isn't but the name molnupiravir comes from thor's hammer so it's like hammering a virus it's, it's like cracking a nut with sledgehammer basically it's using really powerful drugs to to hit something that doesn't need hitting so molnupiravir is extremely concerning and i would urge everybody to do a little bit of research and they can go on to um panoramictrial.com because it's being rolled out in the uk first on a clinical crisis so if anybody wants to go and investigate further that's panoramictrial.com okay debbie thank you very much uh, right, over to Alex then, and uh, we're starting off with the uh, Los Angeles time. Alex, first of all, welcome to the programme, and here we've got uh, exes and vaxes, family courts weigh in on parents being vaccinated. It's interesting that this segment is actually going to cover all five Anglo-Saxon countries to, to demonstrate, as we pointed out last week, uh, that they are really in the lead with a lot of this agenda and in lockstep. The Los Angeles Times is actually regarded as one of the big three uh, pro-establishment, um, pro-globalist broadsheets in the United States, but it seems to be peeling off from the two East Coast titles and at least documenting some certain um, unfortunate things. I've seen recently that they have similarly documented uh, how much population surveillance has been allowed to come through in the last couple of years. So here they are sending reporters to their local county court and uh, they're finding that judges are completely convinced that in divorce cases, uh, the uh, the parents, often it's the father, suing for custody in the so-called family courts, are simply being presented with a fait accompli, get jabbed or you will not see your children, under the slogan or excuse, this child needs to be protected from the virus. So it's an indication, of course, that uh, any trials that don't have juries in them. And, and by definition, uh, if you roll out family courts, we're told that we can't have juries on them, even in common law jurisdictions, you're going to get this. And if you go back to the slide there, we see that other largely um, 
liberal-dominated states in American terms, Illinois and New York, have got very similar things going on. But it's not just the US. British judges are proving to have the same attitude. So the website now just using the acronym, oh, there's the, there's the final part of that slide. So the, the LA County hearing um, has the uh, the judge being uh, told, the judge telling the father, I want to know what your medical reason is for not getting jabbed. Your child needs to be protected. So uh, there we are. The conservative woman, or just uh, goes by the acronym TCW now, has a piece by Sally Beck reporting that a vaccine judge's mind was already made up. This relates to parents of children in the 12 to 17 age group who have been petitioning the court for the release of real-time safety data for COVID vaccines. The Office for National Statistics, we noted that in the first year of COVIDism, uh, they were less politicised than Public Health England, which is now called the UK Health Security Agency, but they've gone political. The ONS is admitting they hold the figures, but will not reveal them publicly. So this has been brought before Mr. Justice Jonathan Swift, um, who's denied the response, uh, the disclosure order. And the mother in question says, I'm not surprised. I feel as though the judge had already made up his mind over to Canada, there is problems with getting people to be jabbed, even in such a totalitarian regime where you can do very little without being jabbed. So the Canadian Post is reporting as of the 15th of January that uh, truckies, truckers are being offered a 10,000 Canadian dollar bonus uh, to receive their first COVID-19 vaccine. Sorry, the deadline of that was January the 15th. The piece was actually from last month. I haven't been able to follow up on how successful this was, but it shows that really a lot of bribery is needed alongside the legal cudgels to get a lot of people, especially in humbler uh, working class professions, uh, to take up the offer as it were. It's often couched that way in Britain, isn't it? People are offered vaccines, we're told. Staying in Canada, we see the re-emergence on the West Coast in the province of British Columbia of the Soviet uh, mental uh, health repression technique known in the Solzhenitsyn era as psychushka. So there's a, in, uh, uh, in BC, there's a doctor who's for a while was locked in a psych ward called Dr. Mel Bruchet, uh, North Vancouver, uh, because he uh, exposed the stillbirth explosion in jabbed mothers. So if you tap that again, we see some of the details. The gentleman in question is in his 80s and possibly in some setup uh, confrontation, who knows, uh, he had a contretemps with his next door neighbour um, with, uh, with a tenant over loud music in his apartment building. Uh, what, whether or not there was a formal report to the police, the next thing is that the Mounties, the federal Canadian police, turn up and a friend of the doctor in question, Dr. Nagase, is interviewed about this as well and manages to work out what's going on. But the, the first doctor in question, Dr. Bruchet, uh, has meanwhile been carted off to psych ward and has been diagnosed with frontal lobe dementia after being given a PET scan. Dr. Bruchet is 81. So uh, one definitely to watch there. Now we have, oh yes, one more um, slide for that, which we'll just briefly put on screen, which is that Dr. Nagase, the friend, the younger doctor, the fellow dissident, if you like, was concerned that if this had been done more quietly in a corner, then Dr. Bruchet may have been uh, treated with uh, Abilify, uh, a medicine often used to treat mental and mood disorders, which should not be given to the elderly. And then we read more in the piece from the RAIR Foundation that reported this about the use of Sihushka in the 1970s in the Soviet Union. Well, before that, but that was the high point. Down to the most totalitarian state in many ways in Australia, the state of Victoria. And I think you have a video clip lined up for me. This has been circulated on TikTok. The video quality is not great and it's in um, mobile upright format. Uh, it purports to show... Uh, 
two women who apparently both seem to be young, that's the first impression we're given, going on a vax date. Uh, I don't think you've got the... Uh, well, I'll just talk uh, while you're looking for that. But uh, if we if we can't find it, yes, there it there's the one. So here we are. The state of Victoria has put this out. So these are two young women going on a lesbian date, and we're uh, led to believe that they're both teens from the initial behaviour. Extremely poorly acted. Uh, but let's see what happens in the clip. Okay, so now lockdown's over, should we go out and do something on the weekend? I mean, that new Spider-Man movie's coming out. Oh, well, that is true. <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> hey, two tickets to see Spider-Man, please. Sure thing. Can I just see your vaccination certificates first, please? Of course. Here you go. Well, my parents haven't let me get vaccinated yet. I mean, you're over 14. You don't actually need to get their permission. I don't. Want to go do it now? Go on a backstage? That's all fun. Cool. Let's go. Delightful. Yes, indeed. Um, now, the uh, young lady who's addressed by her girlfriend here is told you're over 14. So, OK, let's let's argue that she may, for argument's sake, be 16, playing a character who's 16 years old, but not much older than that. You know, she could, for argument's sake, be 14. Uh, the other young lady there, um, how old would you say she is? Significantly older. Uh, you spotted that from the, uh, the the features above the mask, didn't you? Um, I think if you've uh, advanced one slide, it's very blurry, but we have got a, a screen capture of the relevant part in the middle. Those listening in audio only will not have seen this, but the the older girlfriend, when she's confronted at the cinema by the uh, the attendants to show her vax pass before getting into the, the to see the film, she fl flashes her... Um, her vax pass on her smartphone and we see that the date of birth there it is it's not not going to be very clear to people uh, but the date of birth on there is july 1975 so this is a 46 year old dating a 14 year old and uh, enticing her to come to the local vax clinic behind the parents of the young woman to have a romantic vax date and uh, the, the slide that we had in between those is just to complete the five eyes very quickly, just to notify people this is too long to show as a video. But in New Zealand, if you go to Free NZ channel on Odyssey, you will see a five minute clip. It's midsummer down there, of course, uh, of the new media, uh, the free journalists, hearing that there are five children who have collapsed behind a cordon that they can't get past in a tent where jabs are being administered to teenagers. And they are calling desperately upon system-aligned journalists, as Vanessa Bealey often aptly calls them, to use their uh, press passes to go behind uh, the cordon to see whether these children have collapsed. But the mainstream or old media uh, journalists in question shuffle off the other way guiltily. Uh, so there we are. That's uh, the state we've got to there. Uh, to end my segment, uh, what used to be my local paper, the Cheltenham Post, when I was a GCHQ officer, has uh, taken an advert, not for the first time, but this time it's the whole of page two that they've taken an advert for, uh, which contains the following. This is a clean, higher resolution uh, shot uh, now of what was actually uh, put on the whole of page two of the Cheltenham Post. Cheltenham is a conurbation of over 100,000 people in the west of England. 
And uh, the uh, person who placed this advert is asking the question, do you know about the MHRA yellow card scheme? Uh, not a link to the UK columns, yellowcard.ukcolumn.org, uh, but it is pointing out the injuries and deaths, the injuries being up to nearly uh, 1.2 million reported injuries now in the yellow card scheme. So at least in Gloucestershire, there's very few people now who can plead ignorance of the scheme. Uh, yes, just a, if you bring that last one on screen there, that is the uh, Information Chaser is a, is a, a Twitter account uh, with the handle T subject, uh, which is one quick way of finding this. If you want to share the high resolution image, the tweet entitled, please share, make the world aware, page two of the Cheltenham Post. Yeah, and Alex, that, that um, leaflet did link at the top, in the top banner, it did link directly to the MHRA's own yellow card statistics, which of course is immensely powerful because it's pointing people back to the government's own data to ask the question. But can we remind our audience again, the MHRA to date has not released any uh, evidence, any documents, any statistics, any quantitative risk assessment proving that the vaccines have not caused millions of adverse effects and um, well over 1,800 deaths still no information. Yes. Okay. Well, let's uh, move to the House of Commons then. And uh, in the last couple of days, there's been a debate uh, and they were talking about lockdown and what uh, what might have driven lockdown and so on. So we're going to start off with uh, the Conservative, Bob Seeley, MP. Um, and we'll just have a listen to who he's uh, um, criticising quite heavily here. I just question to what extent that includes modelling and the forecasts that have come from it. Um, thanks to some questionable modelling, poorly presented and often misrepresented, I think it's true to say that never before has so much harm been done to so many by so few based on so little questionable, potentially flawed data. I, I believe the use of modelling is, is pretty much getting up there for national scandal. This is not just the fault of the modellers, but it's how their work was interpreted by public health officials, by the media, and yes, by politicians, and sadly, by government too. Modelling and forecast was the ammunition that drove lockdown and created a climate of manipulated fear. And I believe that creation of fear was pretty despicable and pretty unforgivable. So, Alex, just, just to get your comment on this, I mean, uh, he was suggest okay he what he said was quite strong but but his his suggestion that that uh misinterpretation of the models had a lot to do with it i think is incorrect because uh you know we had uh, ferguson. neil ferguson yes thank you neil ferguson has history for this kind of thing if we look at uh, foot and mouth in 2001 for example uh, that was his response he, he was responsible for the models which which started the uh, slaughter on suspicion campaign um so you know he has history it goes be so it's not like the mainstream media or politicians weren't aware that what he whatever he said should be taken with a very large pinch of salt or certainly uh, certainly queried Yes, the, uh, both of us, Mike, have in the past worked in um, large organisations that depend heavily on computer modelling. And the geeks in both of those uh, walks of life that we used to be in would say when confronted about bad data, rubbish in, rubbish out. Now, the uh, mis misapprehension, shall we call it that, that's being uh, offered to the house there is the idea that you start with a model and then if you interpret it badly, you're being naughty or silly. Uh, this ignores, of course, that a model is just that. It has had stuff fed into it 
Laura Dodsworth in her book, State of Fear, has gone pretty close to the source, although often anonymously in quoting this, and we've, we've had more examples of it since that we've featured on UK Column News. Uh, those who have uh, primed the models and, and uh, input them have thrown up their hands uh, in, in uh, helplessness at some point and said, we were told to model worst case scenarios. We were given certain parameters. It's what goes into the model not what comes out of it. And also, before I forget to comment on it regarding the uh, September 16th, 2021 minutes of the uh, board meeting of, I think, the MHRA that you showed in that segment, I, I note with alarm that one of the participants was described there as being uh, a member of the UK's Department for International Development, which had precisely a year before that, in September 2020, been rolled into the Foreign Office. So it's a possible indication that the contacts and possibly the bare bones of the meeting were planned for more than a year prior to that. Yes. Uh, well, look, uh, it, it got worse uh, because after Mr. Seeley had uh, given his comments about Neil Ferguson and the other modellers, uh, Brendan O'Hara from the SNP uh, stood up and well things deteriorated from there. Many people from across these islands owe their lives and I believe the work that these people have done under enormous pressure should be applauded and appreciated and not undermined by the far-right libertarian Tories we have today. Oh I'm glad you're I'm glad you shout shame. It's a pleasure to serve under your chairship. And I congratulate, I think, the Honourable Member. No more shouting. We're wasting time. No more shouting. Fleur. Fool. Can I just clarify that as parliamentary? Well, I, I, it's much easier if you're a chairman not, not to hear a lot of what goes on here. Well, uh, you know, Alex, we may view uh, Mr. O'Hara as being a bit of a fool, but, but I think what that uh, demonstrated uh, in microcosm was really the divide that there is in ideology, uh, in politics, but that, that is similar in, in the wider country. Yes, it is. And of course, um, OK, right wing is a term of abuse. Let's leave that to one side because the, the political culture in Scotland has taken that particular turn since at least the 80s. Uh, but the, the Mr O'Hara's other swear word there, libertarian, you know, just look at the origins of the Scottish National Party. It was supposed to be a pro-freedom party, wasn't it? I'm, I'm actually writing a series for a Dutch dissident uh, publication at the moment on just how much the SNP has done a, a complete volte face in its recent history. Uh, and this is one example of it, flinging around libertarian as a term of abuse there, uh, implies that Mr. O'Hara's, possibly his whole party's uh, preferred mode of life, is totalitarian. Yes, indeed. Um, well, speaking of totalitarians, let's uh, have a look at the BBC. And they had this uh, wonderful article. I mean, it is really spectacular, uh, published a day or two ago. Uh, Anti-vax protests, colon, sovereign citizens fight UK COVID vaccine rollout. Uh, so we're just going to take a few quotes from this, Alex, and ask you for a comment. Uh, so we'll start off uh, from with the beginning. Opposition to COVID vaccinations have come in many forms, but none stranger than the sovereign citizen defence. It uses defunct English ancient law, uh, sorry, ancient English law to try to challenge regulations. Some anti-vaccination protesters outside schools and hospitals have used this to hand out fake legal documents to teachers, parents and health workers. Not sure how true that is. Uh, others have sought to remove COVID patients from intensive care wards, citing non-existent common law, empowering them to do so. Uh, and they really focus on 
organized with new groups like this, the Alpha Men Assemble group. Uh, and they're suggesting that this is an extremist organization, that it's teaching people how to, uh, uh, you know, uh, break through police lines and so on and, and really turn what has been up to this point absolutely uh, peaceful and, uh, and, and, yeah, peaceful demonstration into something different. Uh, and then they go on to say, what do sovereign citizens believe? Well, the sovereign citizen movement, they say, originated in anti-government protests in the U.S. in the, sixth, in the 1970s. Uh, and they say uh, it rose to prominence amongst, the, along with the militia movement in the 1990s. So again, they're trying to present this notion that it's extremist in nature. It was in that decade that the UK version of the movement surfaced. Uh, and they say British believers think that they can opt out of laws which they do not agree based on a clause or as they term it, Article 61 of Magna Carta. The clause, the clause describes a process of electing representative barons who had the power to seize property in order to redress grievances. It was struck from Magna Carta within a year of its signing and like much of the document has no legal standing today. So I find that very interesting, Alex, because of course, if we go back to 2001, uh, here we've got the Telegraph. Uh, peers used Magna Carta to oppose EU charter. Their petition, petition presented under clause 61 of the ancient charter asks the queen to withhold, withhold royal assent from the Nice Treaty. It has the backing of 65 Eurosceptic peers led by Lord Ashbourne and has been organized by Sanity, which is subjects against the Nice Treaty. So, Alex, I'm a bit confused here. Uh, was Article 61 repealed one year after the, well, in fact, the Magna Carta, of course, wasn't signed. It was only sealed, but that's, forget that little historical detail. We don't need to be accurate in our reporting, do we? Um, what are your thoughts on what, what you've seen from the BBC so far, and, and, uh, and particularly this issue of Article 61? Uh, a new low, Mike. I'm glad you mentioned the correct verb repeal, because I was going to point out anyway that if you wanted to talk about laws not being applicable, which were applicable in the past, you have to use the relevant verb, which would either be annul, repeal, supersede, set aside, cassate. Any of these would be in various jurisdictions in different parts of the English-speaking world uh, useful and, and appropriate verbs. Uh, defunct as a past participle is not used of a law. Uh, non-existent is not used of a law. You'll not find a judge or, or a barrister talking about uh, laws with, with those adjectives. So this is, of course, journalistic uh, scarism. It's, it's not actually any kind of legal standing. I don't think that was a legal correspondent that you put uh, put an article up about. I've never met a sovereign citizen. I know they were big in, the, in Canada in the 1990s. Uh, they had some success in court. Likewise, the term Freeman on the land was used for a while to tar everyone uh, with the same... And that is mentioned in this article as well, by the way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember a, a clip from, would it be the early 2010s, where uh, a Glaswegian was stopped for not having plates and he hadn't registered his vehicle with the Driver and Vehicle Licensing Authority. And uh, the Glasgow policeman in question, when uh, when the, the encounter was recorded and the chap said, well, uh, I don't actually have to um, register my vehicle, I'm travelling and travelling is protected under common law. The policeman shot back, are you a Freeman on the land? And the gentleman said, no, I'm a Scottish sovereign. The policeman did a double take and said, well, I've been given instructions from Strathclyde on, uh, uh, on how to deal with people with your opinions. Right. So the, the labels don't really matter. As regards uh, Article 61, and I see the, the dig about clauses and articles because the, well, the, the original document wasn't numbered, the 1216 reissue of Magna Carta did not have the relevant wording in it. There were some subsequent ones which did. Off the top of my head, 1291 springs to mind. And uh, ultimately, it is the passing into custom 
and acceptance in, in previous case law in jurisprudence that establishes that that article is valid. No lesser figure than Winston Churchill uh, said when writing his History of the English-Speaking Peoples, I think it was, that uh, time and again appeal has been made to Magna Carta, and he certainly didn't quibble Article 61 as part of that, and Churchill said time and again and it has been found successful, uh, including through the civil wars in the 17th century. Uh, Magna Carta is, you know, like like any assertion of sovereignty or um, uh, in, in, uh, inalienable rights, it's used or lost in the assertion or failure to assert that it's it's a part of your God-given entitlements. So, Alex, if we keep it simple here, the BBC, these two journalists, Alastair Coleman and Cheyenne uh, Sadezeredeh, if I've pronounced that correctly, um, I've been told, I haven't checked this myself, that they're both very, very young. But this is an article designed to dis deliberately mislead the British public about the standing of their own laws, common law in particular. So the BBC here, um, well, this is another fine advert for the BBC that their uh, their um, licence fee should be stripped away immediately. I yeah, yes, thought. and if we just put that Telegraph article back on screen for a second, uh, I mean, it's this was 2001 when this happened, but we have... We had a, a barons committee. Four barons then took the the the, the uh, Article sixty one um, uh, petition to the uh, the Queen, uh, but that was backed by sixty five peers, other peers in in the uh, yeah. and, uh, including the barons. So this wasn't something, that, and this is a modern usage of Article sixty one uh, by people from the House of Lords. So the BBC can't get away with that. But that's uh, uh, they went on to criticise uh, uh, writs. Uh, and uh, they said that sovereign citizen activists have also issued fake legal writs calling for uh, the recipient to stop promoting or administering COVID vaccines. These threaten prosecution for violating the Nuremberg Code against human experimentation. They urge all constables and sovereign men and women to arrest these figures on site and without delay. Uh, one sent to the BBC's disinformation reporter, Mariana Spring, said she was being served with a notice of liability for harm and death. And this, of course, Where's the evidence of where these uh, these alleged writs came from, first of all? But Mariana Spring, uh, of course, gets mentioned in this article because she has been pushing the narrative extremely hard uh, that, uh, you know, lockdown, anti-lockdown uh, sentiment is a gateway to far-right extremism. And again, uh, of course, that being used as a, as a label to discredit. Um, so uh, a, a real work of art by these uh, two young journalists. Um, and, but, but the BBC, obviously desperate that its uh, narrative is just not being taken by the public. So I, th I think there's a silver lining to this particular article. Yes. OK, so if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, uh, we do need your financial support. And that would be very much uh, appreciated uh, if you're watching for free. Um, uh, Join us because your financial support is needed. Uh, also, please uh, do share our material on the uh, various platforms. Uh, and if you want to support us via the shop as well, that would be much appreciated too. Now, on Monday's uh, programme, uh, we spoke about or we mentioned the uh, Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill and that the House of Lords was beginning its first day, or sorry, its final day of detailed checks on that. Uh, and well, unfortunately, the government uh, was defeated in various uh, votes. Uh, so let's just have a brief look at what uh, happened on early on Tuesday morning. Uh, so the Lords voted against the new events of locking on. Now, locking on, of course, was used extensively during the anti-fracking protests, uh, where you know, people would uh, effectively develop all kinds of clever mechanical mechanisms for attaching themselves to trucks 
and various other uh, things, and it would very much delay the activities of the corporations involved in pursuing the fracking agenda. Uh, so the Lords have voted against uh, creating an offence of locking on. They've, they've voted against uh, an offence of obstructing the construction or maintenance of major transport works. Uh, they voted against uh, an offence of interference with the use or operation of key national infrastructure. Uh, they have also voted against allowing police to stop and search a person or a vehicle. So what was being proposed in this bill was that if the police decided that you were heading towards uh, any kind of demonstration or protest, uh, that they would be able to stop and search. You're looking for signs uh, or anything like that, remove the, uh, any of the, the banners or signs that you may have on your person. Uh, they also voted against allowing the police to stop and search without suspicion. Now, again, it's, I'm not entirely clear whether suspicion was uh, defined in this case. As we know with this type of legislation, these terms usually aren't very well defined. But anyway, at least they voted against that. Uh, and also they voted against banning anyone who's got a history of protest because one of the clauses in the uh, in the legislation was saying that anybody that had uh, taken part, an active part in past protests would effectively become a person of interest uh, and they would be banned from taking part in any future protests. So you take part in one protest and your name is noted and the next time you turn up, you're banned. Yes. That's the history, isn't it? That, absolutely. So one. so let's, uh, let's move on to what they voted for because these were more government defeats. They voted for scrapping imposition of conditions on marches. So they were, uh, there was a, a clause in the legislation which would have uh, limited uh, the scope of a march uh, or demonstration. Uh, they voted for protection of Parliament Square as a piece of place of protest. Now, of course, we uh, met many of our viewers and listeners on Parliament Square uh, several months ago, and that was a great thing. Uh, but beside us on Parliament Square was Extinction Rebellion, not very many of them, uh, but they were uh, launching their, their uh, march from there. Um, so that is a place that has been used for a lo very long time as a place of protest, and this legislation was attempting to remove that too close to Parliament, really, and they were scared of, of any... Uh, uh, scared of the public is what they're the, scared of. Right? Absolutely. So so the vote have... Uh, uh, the Lords have voted to protect that, uh, and they have voted to require the police to tell the truth at public inquiries. This was quite a, a spectacular one for me because I didn't realise that the police were not, were, were not required to tell the truth at public inquiries. Alex, I thought public inquiries, uh, you would have been on oath. Uh, so did I, Mike. So that one is entirely new to me. Of course, it could be a, a wangle that by creating a specific statutory duty, you're claiming that, the, that, there, that there's no background universal common law obligation to, to honour your oath. You know, often common law is struck out or, or sort of claimed to be by statute. So that, that would be a correct uh, interpretation of what these two BBC journalists got horribly wrong. Yes. OK. So and then the final one to mention that they voted for was to restrict scope for tougher sentencing for uh, for blocking the highways. Um, so this will now go back to the uh, now that these votes have taken place, this will go back to the House of Commons. And undoubtedly, undoubtedly there'll be some toing and froing between the House of Commons and the House of Lords as they try to uh, to, to nail down uh, where it's going to go from here. But basically, uh, some most of the or at least a significant proportion of the really nasty uh, teeth have been pulled from this, um, at least at this stage. So, so we'll see uh, where it goes. But just a quick reminder, uh, if anybody wants to understand the implications of this and the kind of activities that the police and, and authorities have been up to in the past, uh, do get hold of a copy of uh, Joseph Boyd's, Joe Boyd's uh, book, The Road to Kill the Bill. 
Uh, and finally on this, just to put it in context, a reminder of the uh, really key pieces of legislation that we think uh, are uh, coming together. Well, they're coming together to create what we're, we're calling a dictatorship. So Covert Human Intelligence Criminal Conduct Act is already through Parliament last year, and that allows government agents to commit uh, criminal offences. Offenses, uh, police crime sentencing course bill we've just discussed, the online safety bill we've discussed uh, significantly you know, over the last number of weeks and months, and the counter-state threats bill. Uh, well, that one's not getting a lot of attention, uh, but it removes the defense of public interest from a whistleblower, um, which means, well, it effectively is the end of, of Alex, it's the end of uh, uh, investigative journalism. If somebody from within the system can't go to, to a journalist and uh, uh, and, uh, you know, under the public interest, <clears throat> disclose information. Yes, your only backstop then is Clive Ponting's defence of 40 years ago, calling upon the jury to annul whatever it is you're charged with, to nullify. But of course, increasingly, juries uh, behave ignorantly, and you cannot guarantee that a jury will not have its ear bent by a judge directing it. So it is extremely concerning. And there's also one more uh, legal rumbling in the background, which, which we haven't dwelt upon yet, which is the stripping of citizenship from everyone that Her Majesty's government thinks it can get away with, such as dual citizens, non-birth citizens. Uh, this is particularly relevant in a time when uh, Macron has said that those who question jabs are not citizens. Anyway, on to Britain. I know we're short of time, so I'm going to try to take this as a fair lick uh, a situation that's been developing since last summer in a church of england parish on the south coast of england um, mail online did a very good thorough uh, report by mark hookham last summer on the origins of this uh, reverend charlie boyle is the vicar of all saints in branksome park pool and uh, he was brought up on charges before his archdeacon and bishop so the middle and senior management for those who don't know anglicanism uh, for the crimes of singing thine be the glory without a mask on at the end of the easter service 2021 and also for putting bibles out that could contaminate and kill people in church apparently there is charlie and sarah boyle uh, sorry um charlie and uh, uh sarah but uh there is the um background to the story i think if you tap that once again there's one more uh summary but not right okay we, we, we're we'll call upon people to pause this rather than read it all but i will describe in summary terms what is going on here um broom sorry is the surname that's got wrong a moment ago right here is a christmas eve email from a parishioner to their vicar and his wife uh the summary of it is that they went to the christmas eve service at all saints and um were told by a fellow parishioner it seems if you are not wearing a mask you are not coming in. The person who did this is described as a doorman. Uh, pleading a medical exemption elicited a demand to go home and get a medical letter. Right, this is a carol concert. If you go to the next uh, slide, you will see that uh, the same parishioner uh, recommended two of the many serious books that there are now for churchgoers on uh, what the church should be doing and is not doing right in a time of COVID-19. Uh, this parishioner signs off uh, to the vicar, forgive me for I am shaking with rage. Now I understand the backlash you feel. That backlash refers to the vicar's wife, Sarah, uh, who attended uh, and the footage, footage was widely shared, was interviewed by uh, somebody uh, as she uh, attended a uh, protest in York recently and said, I am a vicar's wife from Dorset. People may know that footage. Uh, and there was a big backlash at the time. Let's go in and see a bit more of this. This one comes from an 86-year-old. 
There we are. An 86-year-old parishioner says, I travelled to All Saints on Sunday evening, the 19th of December. This is another emailed testimony to the vicar and his wife. And, uh, his wife. The long and the short of this is, again, uh, you're not coming in without a mask. When I queried this, says the 86-year-old, I was told it's the law, which clearly it is not. And like the, uh, the younger parishioner, uh, she challenged this. The younger parishioner said on the, the slide, we slide we showed a moment ago, you are lying to the doorman. I don't think this lady did that. She's 86. But she took a more Christian response that you can see at the bottom, quoting Galatians 2, etc. Uh, one or both of these emails were then forwarded to the relevant bishop, Bishop Sarah. So that's the next slide. When the vicar and his wife uh, emailed these uh, experiences to the bishop, they got a reply at 1 a.m. on Christmas morning from the Bishop of Sherborne, Bishop Karen, sorry, not Becerra, saying to uh, the vicar's wife, Dear Sarah, I'm not sure why you have forwarded this. The rules are to be followed for the common good and should be upheld. Notice she doesn't speak about law or anything like that. People are anxious enough and we want them to feel safe, a core uh, a plank here of what's going on, the idea that the bishop is there to make people feel safe in a service which is not the historical or biblical position. They're there to oversee the flock. Um, the congregation, she says, are getting very upset with what is happening. And in between that, uh, those two paragraphs, Bishop Karen, probably apropos of, uh, of uh, Sarah's interview uh, in the recent past before that, says, you are attracting anarchists. I might think that's an actionable claim, but anyway, it's been there. And then it's happy, happy Christmas, God bless you from the bishop. Let's go on to see what happened after that. I now have to introduce the Archdeacon, Archdeacon of Dorset, uh, who's the layer of management between uh, the bishop and the parish. And this is uh, uh, the Reverend Anthony Macrow Wood, who's been in post since 2015. And this testimony is from the mouth of two witnesses, as the Bible puts it. Uh, two people went to see him about the uh, the treatment of the uh, the vicar and half of the parishioners. And during the course of the meeting, he said, overweight people need to get hold of themselves. They should receive penalties from the National Health Service, perhaps not so surprising in a day when former senior NHS staff go off to be Bishop of London. Uh, but if you go on to that, we from that, you will see uh, an introduction um, to... Uh, this this write-up's far too long to read, but this is what happened when the uh, two parishioners in question or concerned local Christians went to see Anthony uh, McCrowwood, the, the archdeacon. Um, freeze that if you want to read all of it. They said uh, this this attitude on the door is a, is a, a bad one, uh, and this is a critical moment for the church. Are they going to follow God's way or follow the world? The final paragraph I will read some of. Uh, if you go back, yeah. uh, Anthony's attitude towards the general public is interesting and worrying. He's of the world and a backstabber. There's no godly faithfulness within him. That's the this is the view of these two people. Um, yeah, there we are. And at this point, he says, third line of the final paragraph, he suggested the anti-vaxxers start their own church. In other words, there is no room for you in the Church of England. Go on to the next slides, and I, I know we have we're short of time. What happened now is that uh, the the Reverend and his wife went on six weeks of sabbatical uh, after uh, New Year. So the first Sunday was the second of January. Uh, a UK column viewer who didn't coordinate this with the vicar and his wife, they did it off their own bat as a group, went to, uh, says that 20 or 30 of them went to All Saints Church as a show of support for Charlie Boyle and his wife. Sorry, my, my I was right the first time with the surname Boyle. They've been forced to take a six-week sabbatical, he says. Um, an elderly lady outside uh, said, our church has been taken over by bloody anti-vaxxers. 
Uh, there were people who arrived and who were lied to in the car park that no service was taking place. Some of those who attempted to go in and peacefully attend the service were told they were a smelly renter mob and not wanted. We now have a video clip, again filmed upright, so not ideal format, but you can see the respectful way in which the, um, uh, well, I wouldn't call them protesters, the concerned guest worshippers came in. They, uh, they are very well handled, I have to say, by the retired priest who was standing in for Reverend Charlie Boyle. So this is how to do it. Notice that they're keeping the, the worship time, which is about to begin, absolutely sacrosanct. But you can see from the sm steady stream of regular parishioners with masks on walking out in disgust that they do not like the idea of these people from outside being allowed in, much less being given a fair hearing. Listen, listen, let them speak, let them speak, let them speak. Hang on a minute. Amen, amen. May I say something, please? Uh, if we could sit down. Uh, my name's Paul, and uh, I'm not the vicar here, as you probably know. Uh, I've come to take the service today. Okay. Now, um, you're very welcome here. Thank you. I'm going to be speaking for about 15 minutes well done. Uh, in Thank the service. You. It's a communion service. At the end of the service, uh, you are very welcome. Someone can speak to... Uh, all those who want to stay, okay? So uh, some people will presumably go at the end of the service and uh, uh, other people will stay and listen to what you have to say. You can't speak longer than I'm going to speak and I won't speak for very long. <laughs> I'll speak for about 10 minutes or quarter of an hour. Um, and uh, I think that's a reasonable solution. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, uh, if, if there's any interruption from the start of the service to the end of the service, that doesn't hold, you won't have a chance to speak, and uh, are you prepared to accept that? We would like to do some worship first, please. Uh, well, it's ten to ten now, people are coming in, uh, you, can, you can worship uh, after someone's spoken at the end, you can lead some worship then, I think that's We best. would like some worship at the beginning, please. No, uh, no, uh, we're going to start in just about ten minutes' time. <clears throat> so, sorry, what time does the service start at half past nine? The service starts at ten o'clock. Well, it said half past nine on the flyer. It's ten o'clock. It's it, the usual service is at half past nine. It's ten o'clock today. Right. This is the only service, and so I'll ask you to sit down and you know, be, you know. We'd like to worship first, please. Uh, no, no. I, I said so no. the Holy Spirit can come. At the end, the Holy Spirit, you can be quiet and mm. just pray in tongues or pray quietly now, and uh, so that's the deal. Uh, if you're happy with it. Uh, that's fine. Uh, those who want to stay afterwards, uh, I'll stay myself. Uh, as long as someone doesn't speak for more than longer I speak, you can time me. I'll be about 10 minutes or a quarter of an hour. But if there's any interruption between now and then, uh, that, that doesn't hold. Okay? Fine. Are you prepared to accept that? Yes, of course, we're Christian people. Good, good. I beg your pardon? I think Jesus is concerned with people coming into church as normal, expecting a service at 10 o'clock, and uh, Jesus is expecting me to care for you uh, and, and love you, and so that is the offer. Uh, but the offer won't stand if there's any interruptions between now and the end of the communion service. Uh, up to you whether you come and take communion. Uh, and then after the end of the communion service, I'll go and say goodbye to those people who are going. Uh, some will stay, I expect, including myself, to hear what you have to say. Fair enough.
After this, the next Sunday was the 9th of January. I understand that the church services for that day were cancelled because uh, Reverend Boyle is on sabbatical anyway. Um, as of the following week, in the run-up to Sunday the 16th, uh, the church website, I'm deliberately not showing a screenshot because I don't want to be accused of inciting anything, but it's, it's a matter of public record where the church is, and obviously anyone who goes to that church should behave lawfully and decently and Christianly inside and outside the service. But the website, whoever manages it on behalf of the parish, announced that as of the 16th, good news, services would resume. Please note it says, this is still up on the church's website, that it is a legal requirement to wear masks in the church if you're not medically exempt. Uh, this is a very questionable statement, to say the least. The website also stated, please note that for everyone's safety, additional security will be on the doors. This might make you think that some kind of um, police uh, present at the door had been called for. And indeed, there were police, if we look at the uh, uh, shots that have been sent to us. But more concerning than that is that the two gentlemen actually on the door saying, where is your mask or you're not coming in, were not actually uh, police. So for the first shot we have is the two members of Dorset Constabulary, as far as I can tell, facing outwards towards the road. So they're standing by the church gate. So they're there. I think they would plead that they're there to keep to prevent a breach of the peace. I tried to ask Dorset Police, but their whole website was down all of yesterday at my end. So I wasn't able to ask for a written statement from them. Here are the two gentlemen in question. I do understand uh, that these gentlemen are parishioners. They're members of the parish congregation. They are not the church wardens. They're not even on the parish council. They have taken it upon themselves to act as bouncers on the door, in my understanding, and to turn people away who cannot prove written medical exemptions, claiming that, they, uh, that, they, that this is the law. So that's the state we've got to. The archdeacon has had bad relations with the Boyle, Boyles since uh, last summer uh, and attempts to get rid of them on a cl clergy disciplinary measure failed. Uh, Macrowood is a former uh, chartered accountant, and he does seem to take an accounting view of the situation. Uh, we don't have time for a long discussion of, about this at all, but it does seem that there is a great coalition coalescence of interests between the NHS, the BBC and the Church of England now. The managerialist attitude in each of these bodies, which increasingly share senior staff, seems to be you're there to do as we're told, that you're told uh, we're there to make sure everyone, including notional people, feel safe. And there does seem to be a pretense that people could, you know, if you don't like it, lump it. Uh, a complete denial of what the church is actually there for. Well, um, Alex, I think we have to add that, of course, the um, the rules are all coming down from Central Church of England. And uh, we know from what's happening in churches in the West Country that very draconian in enforcing government policy. Uh, and uh, we've got to bring in well-being and, and what's being put out to local parishes through the Central Church of England. So a lot to be discussed on it. But the key bit is that government policy is being shown here to turn people against each other. And that, of course, was exactly what was discussed in the SAGE uh, documents, the SAGE minutes, where they, they warned that if the government policy was over-egged, it could result in violence in communities. What we're seeing here is the first stages, people being aggressive to one another as a result of the policy. So this brings us into the Daily Mail and the nudge unit, the behavioural insights team, and how serious it is. But unfortunately, we haven't got time to discuss it today. No, I think we'll talk a little bit more about that in extra. But look, Alex, we are out of time. So we'll just very quickly run through the final uh, two or three slides here. So uh, this is a doctored uh, BBC News article, I believe, uh, how you should talk to friends and relatives who believe conspiracy theories. 
Uh, and uh, the, the, uh, the, the graphic is doctored to say, hey, bro, you were right about everything. I'm sorry. And of course, this is a doctored version of an original piece by our old friend Mariana Spring, who was in the original version taking it upon herself to uh, tell people how they should bring everyone round to the approved way of thinking. From Germany, we have another and finally slide. The new health minister, uh, their health secretary, is Karl Lauterbach. With is that, is that uh, a wig? It seems to be rotten teeth. Uh, yes, yes, he's been given a, a wig with a perm in it because this is a German pun. Karl Lauterbach warnt vor Dauerwelle means literally Karl Lauterbach is warning of the dangers of a permanent wave, as in a perm hairdo. He doesn't actually have that, that, that hair in real life. Yeah, but he, okay. the, the, the rotten teeth from chain smoking are the original uh, article owned by the new health minister. He is something else if you want to look into him. I don't know who's nuts, who's more nuts in Germany. It's either him or the, uh, the, the, the trampolining champion who's become the foreign minister there, uh, oh, Mrs. Baerbock, who wants war yeah, with yeah, Russia I think, tomorrow. I think it's her, yes. Yeah. From... From the far north of Germany, the Burma Zeitung from a couple of weeks ago reports gleefully on a shepherd who managed to, by strategically placing bits of bread on the in the field, managed to get 700 sheep to line up in the form of a syringe to celebrate and entice people into getting jabbed. So sheep uh, in asking you to get jabbed, interesting turn of uh, uh, events or visual idiom there. Do you have well, any more, Mike? Well, I know we've got spectacular. More. No, that, that's, it. Yes. that's it for now. <laughs> I was just going to say, there's some good news there, isn't there? Because there's a few sheep that haven't joined the syringe brigade. Yeah, but so, so there we are. OK, well, we're going to say a big thank you, Alex and Debbie. Thank you for joining us. Uh, sorry, apologies for the slightly late start, but uh, we've come to the end of the UK column news. Thank you so much to everybody who is donating to the UK column and those who are subscribing to us. We intend to continue to expand in what we're doing for 2022. So if you're not already a subscriber, please do subscribe. Thank you for joining us. And extra time. Yeah, I'll be back in a few minutes for extra. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.